Good morning, church family. If you would please stand for a reading of God's word. We're going to be reading Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. That can be found on page 516 in the blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at home, please take one of these Bibles as our gift to you. Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to a village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent so he went in to stay with them when he was at table with them he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight they said to each other did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he appeared, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
What a marvelous mystery. What a wonderful thing that you have done in the raising of Christ. And Lord, as we said earlier, we have to come before you with repentance. Those of us who believe have been so apathetic in this regard to remember that we serve a Christ who is risen, not a Christ who is dead, not a Christ that can be categorized with Buddha and Mohammed and other religious leaders long since dead and in the grave. We serve a risen Savior. And we repent for the times that we've acted as if that was not true. We've acted in in the way that that wasn't true in our silence, in our lack of rejoicing, our lack of worshiping, our lack of gratitude for your risen life. And Lord, we've neglected the promise that says if that same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then it shall quicken also your mortal body. Lord, we've forgotten that we are fallen creatures and bodies that are failing us and will someday fall into the dust. But Lord, the story doesn't end for us there. You have promised that you will resurrect these bodies and make them like your glorious body. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would be very grateful, very thankful today for the joy that should accompany the news that Christ the Lord is risen. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So the story that Landy read to us is found only in the book of Luke. There are There is one brief reference to it in one of the other Gospels, but uh, in the detail that we have, it's only found in Luke. Before this encounter on the road to Emmaus, Christ had already appeared, had resurrected uh, to Mary Magdalene and to Simon Peter. But these two travelers did not know that. They did not know that what the angels had said to the women, do you remember what they said in Luke 24, 5? He said, they said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And they knew that they were at least claiming that the angels had said that, but they had no verification of that. That had not been confirmed to them. And therefore, these two, these two travelers on the road to Emmaus were forlorn. They were dejected. Their seven-mile Sunday walk to Emmaus gave them plenty of time for conversation between the two of them. And there was... Only one thing important enough for them that morning to discuss. It was, as Luke puts it, all these things that had happened. And, of course, they were referring to the recent trial, the condemnation, the beating, the crucifixion, and the burial of Jesus, who these two had followed. And and they believed was the hope of Israel, the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. Now, we don't know much at all about these two travelers, except that they had trusted in Jesus. They had placed all of their eggs in the basket of the coming of the kingdom of God. One of these, these was named 
Cleopas. And we don't know the identity of the other person. The text doesn't give us that. They could have been both men who were companions or friends or fellow disciples. Some theologians have even suggested they may have been a husband and a wife. The Bible just doesn't tell us. But while they were, what we do know is that while they were talking through their trauma, their loss, their grief, guess what happens? Jesus shows up. And he approaches them. And the Bible says, I love the word, the verbiage of the Bible. It says that he drew near and went with them. And I may be the only one here, but that means a lot to me. You know why? Because I can't tell you. I, I really can't relate to you how many times in my darkest trials, when I had the greatest sense of loss, that Jesus drew near to me. Though I felt like I was traversing the literal valley of the shadow of death, he was with me. Have you experienced this? Have you found him to be near even when your world was falling apart? The Bible tells us that's the kind of God he is. Psalm 34 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. See, Jesus is the great friend of sinners and sufferers. He loves us, and he loves to be near us when we can't help ourselves, when our worlds are shaken and everything's falling apart. He wants to be near near us. But, But there's something even more interesting about the story that's laid out before us. The Bible tells us that these two, who were obviously familiar with Jesus who knew his face, who knew the sound of his voice, they didn't recognize him. This is the way the Bible puts it. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now what is this telling us? It's telling us that there was a miraculous intervention on the part of God and... In this way, and by for a moment withholding the identity of Jesus who was walking right with them, not just Jesus, the resurrected up from the grave, he arose Jesus, who's walking right with them, for a moment he was going to withhold that knowledge from them. Somehow they weren't going to recognize him. And this is the way that he chose to glorify to them the risen Christ. And we'll see that here in just a minute. So to them... Christ seems like just another traveler on the road to Emmaus. Just another guy out for a walk that day going from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And then after joining them, Jesus asks the most absurd question to their ears. He says, hey guys, what's all this you're talking about? Now I want you to imagine that it is September 12th, 2001... And you are walking down Broadway in New York City and, and someone is, comes up to you, looks you right in the eyes and says, hey, what's everybody so upset about? Well, how absurd would that be? The, 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 what, what terrorist attack are you talking about? That's what these guys did when Jesus said, what, what, what happened? What, tell me, tell me about these things. And he persists in asking them about what happened. And, and, and they're, they're shocked. They say the whole city's been in an uproar. The Jews are involved. The Romans are involved. The sky turned dark, for goodness sakes. The, the very ground beneath us was shaken. How could anyone not notice these things? 
And Jesus just keeps persisting. And they explain to him, this, this man they don't recognize, they say, Jesus was a prophet. And he was, he was like Moses. He was a, a man who was mighty in power and mighty in word and deed. He, he was unlike anybody else. But just when we thought he was going to fix everything, he was delivered up. First, he was delivered up by Judas, one of his very own followers, to the chief priests. And then before you knew it, the chief priests turned him over to Rome, our enemies. And then they condemned him. They flogged him right, in, right before our eyes. They, they crucified him. And, and it's even worse than that. He's been dead now for three days. And on top of all that, they tell this man they don't know, they say, man, we had hopes. We had dreams associated with this man. We had plans. We, we thought for sure he would deliver Israel from Roman oppression, that he would reestablish the law of God in the land. That he would usher in the return of David's kingdom right here among us. But man, those hopes just got swept by the tides of reality right against the rocks and they are dashed. Proverbs 13.12 tells us this, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Anybody ever experienced that? What you thought was going to happen? The plans, the dreams, the idea that you had, you just see it circle the drain and go away forever. Man, hope deferred makes the heart sick. See, for these two, the sequence of things that they had hoped for didn't come to pass. Their vision vision statement had just gotten tossed into the shredder. They wondered how they could have misinterpreted what they'd seen from the hands of Jesus and heard from the lips of of Jesus so wrongly. How did we miss it? How did we get this so wrong? To add to their frustration, some of the women in their company, these, these believers, these ones who were just like them, had put all their hope in Jesus. They had come back this morning trying to prepare the body for burial and they came back hysterical and they were they were saying that they'd seen this vision of angels and that these angels had told them that Jesus had risen but they were not inclined to believe these women people say crazy things in grief they say really crazy stuff when they're dealing with severe heartache others like Peter and John ran to the tomb to investigate and confirm what the women had said. But sure enough, they found the tomb to be empty. But there were no angels. And worse yet, there was no Jesus. Probably someone had moved him. The Jews, the Romans. So here these poor travelers are. They just don't know what to believe anymore. They are just confused, and disillusioned. Anybody here relate to these guys? Have you ever seen your best predictions of how the next chapter in your story was going to play out? Just go up in smoke? 
It's times like this where we discover how terrible we are at being interpreter of the times. Anybody want to say amen to that? We're not very good at being interpreters of our environment. We, we don't interpret other people's actions very well. And we certainly don't have a clue sometimes about the eternal plan of God who is sovereign. So we need something more grounded, more rooted to help us understand than our own thoughts, our best thoughts, our best intentions, our best dreams. This is where the story gets really cool because Jesus, who still has not been recognized by his traveling companions, he just forsakes all social graces. Now, that may make you uncomfortable to think of Jesus that way, but he just tosses social protocol right out the window. What do I mean by that? Because he responds to guys who are obviously grieving, obviously in sadness and melancholy. He says like this, you two are utterly foolish. Wow. Sorry we said anything, Jesus. You're utterly foolish. How foolish you are. Have you ever even read the scriptures? Uh, I beg your pardon, sir. We are good Jews. We've memorized most of it. Why, Jesus asked, are you so hesitant to believe all that the prophets have written? Yikes. Yikes. Now, if these two had been religiously sensitive, like most of Jesus' opponents, like like the Pharisees, they would have been completely offended. See, you may think someone is a fool. Now, don't raise your hand, but have you ever thought... Someone was a fool. You may think that someone is a fool, but it is a rarity to find someone so honest to say so and to say it directly to the fool's face. Not Jesus. But he goes further. He he went on to tell them how the way that they were reading the Bible was completely wrong. Now, I have a little experience in this department. As a pastor, I can tell you that people usually do not respond favorably to your suggestion that they're reading the Bible wrong. I have never, ever, rarely, I should say, had a pat on the back and and had somebody say, thank you, pastor, for telling me I was reading the Bible wrongly. We get pretty proud about the way we read the Bible. But see, there's a difference between what I say to someone and what Jesus says to someone. Jesus spoke with authority, and his authority came from the fact that he himself was the author of every prophecy that foretold both his suffering and his glorious resurrection. See, it was Jesus' finger that had chiseled the law on tablets of stone and had been given to his people Israel so many centuries before he had authority to spoke about what the Word said. And so he opened the Word before them. And he begins his sermon with this great question to make them think, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Man, don't you just 
wish that you could have heard that sermon that day on the road? Don't you just wish that you had audio or video of that sermon? And Christ the preacher, when I refer to this as a sermon, because he's preaching from the Word, when Christ the preacher opened the Word to preach, he didn't just select the text and craft three points and add a few clever illustrations and funny stories and end with a moving poem. No, this is what the Bible says. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Now Moses and all the prophets, this is kind of Old Testament Jewish code for the whole Old Testament. It's like everything that had been written and recognized as scripture at that point, that's what he's referring to. From Genesis to Malachi, these two were were given a course in Christology that would have made any seminary seem like kindergarten. Because the instructor of their course, the preacher of their sermon, was God made flesh, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And Jesus didn't point to himself as he opened up all the scriptures to these guys. He didn't uh, point to himself as a subheading in systematic theology among other important topics of scripture. He presented himself as the totality of scripture's message. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. See, you'll never, please hear me on this. You will never interpret Scripture properly unless you start with Jesus, unless you search for Jesus on every page, and and, and unless you end up with Jesus as your ultimate discovery. When you open the Word, what you're looking for is Jesus, no matter where you're reading. See, the Bible is so wrongly presented to us these days. It it isn't a book about how to have success in your marriage or or, or how to have success in your business or how to get some kind of control over your lust and your anger. The Bible is the historical record of God's revealed plan for redemption for all who believe. And that plan culminates in Jesus, in the cross and the empty tomb. That's what the Bible is about. Now, does the Bible speak to your finances, your marriage, and your sin? Of course it does. But what you've got to understand is the Bible is not a how-to book for any of those things. In every area it addresses about our day-to-day lives, it, repre- it, it reorients us, it points us back to Christ alone, who alone can save us, can bless us, can restore us, can make us holy, can empower us, can forgive us. It is not my efforts, it is what Christ has already accomplished for me that does all of those things. And so our prayer should be, Holy Spirit, as we, every time we open the Word of God, every time we listen to the Word of God in a sermon, a podcast, whatever it is, we should pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes. That we may not just read this Word of your truth with blinded eyes, by eyes that are blinded by fleshly and religious desires, but let us in these pages see Christ revealed, crucified, resurrected, and glorified, and may we be changed into His image. <laughs> Let's not be fools like these two. 
coming to the word with a predetermined interpretational framework that does not include Jesus. But let's come to the Bible with hearts prepared to hear and to learn from Christ the Lord. Now, if this sounds intimidating, here's my counsel. Get some help. It's that important. Humble yourself. If you don't know how to read the Bible, ask for help. No one's going to mock you or judge you. If they're wise enough, they're going to help you. Find somebody that you know is more spiritually mature than you and, 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 and talk scriptures through with them. Get some good resources and, and, and work at it. Don't just grab your little card with your one scripture a day and think that, that, and think that you understand all of scripture because you read a passage. Read the Bible rightly and do not give up until you encounter Christ richly within its pages. What an impact Jesus made on these two. What an incredible impact. As they came close to Emmaus, their final destination, Jesus acted, I love this, Jesus could be kind of coy at times, you know it? He acted like, I'm just going to move on down the road a little further. But they wouldn't hear of it. They, he had made such an impact on their lives. How could they part from the one who had found them in their despair and brought such hope to them? How could they abandon the one who had found them in such darkness and brought them out into so much light? Stay with us, they pleaded. Come on, just stay, Jesus. Or they didn't know it was Jesus. Just stay, sir. <laughs> Stay with us, they pleaded. Come in for a bite to eat so we can discuss these things further. And finally, Jesus relented and he followed him into the house. And at the house, the table was set before them. Now again, don't miss this little point. For the second time in this short story, Jesus abandoned every identifiable social grace, every social protocol. How? Well, instead of taking his place as the humble guest in a home that was not his own, he begins to act as though he's the host who had invited these guys. He just took over. Took over the dinner party. Is that okay? Is it okay for Jesus to take over? It better be because the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, he can do whatever he wants. Amen? Wherever Jesus is, Jesus is in charge. See, some people approach corporate worship like this, like we're doing today, as though we're creating a welcoming atmosphere so that God might just perhaps hopefully show up. But can I let you in on a little secret? Don't tell your other friends. That's a pagan idea. Remember in the, in the, uh, in the Old Testament when there was a showdown on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal and Elijah and what were the prophets of Baal doing? They were cutting themselves and crying out and begging their gods, please show up! Elijah's over there making fun of them. Maybe he's in the restroom. Maybe he's on vacation. That's actually what he says. Look it up. He says, maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's... Because Elijah knows that it's foolish that we would have to kind of manipulate God to show up. We don't summon God. 
We come to worship because God has already summoned us. He calls us into His presence to worship Him, not to entertain Him, not to appease Him. That is utterly unnecessary because Jesus Christ on His cross has already appeased Him. And because of that, we can respond to His summons and come in with hearts filled with worship. Back to the story. So Jesus, acting as host, takes this loaf of bread and he blesses it. We always talk about saying the blessing over our food. And I think that there's a similarity to what we do when we give thanks for what God's provided and what Jesus did. But I want you to think about that word, he blessed it. It means that Jesus consecrated it. He made it holy. This bread lifted up in his hands was now God's. And it was God's for God to use to nourish, to satisfy, and to refresh his weary people. And after blessing it, he, the Bible tells us that he broke it. He took the one loaf and he tore it into pieces. Because by tearing it, it was the only way that this bread could be shared among many who were hungry. Instead of some elite person being filled while others were left empty. And after breaking it, he actually gave it to those who were present. What he held in his hands, what was his, he gave to them so that they might feed upon it and be satisfied. Anybody drawing some lines here? See, it was at this point in the meal that something incredible happened. As the bread was blessed, as it was broken, as it was distributed, As they beheld the man who had given them bread, their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. Can you imagine? Having been with somebody for several hours and then you realize that this isn't just somebody. This isn't just a preacher on the road. This is Jesus. And they realized it. They realized they had been walking and talking with Jesus. Now, we know from the earliest part of the story that these two somehow were at least associated with the disciples in some way during Jesus' ministry. They referred to those who had seen the empty tomb as some of those who were with us. He talked about some of the women of our company. And so they were a part of that group. And could it be that what they had seen and heard before during Jesus' ministry is what God used to open their eyes when the bread was broken. Did they recall how Jesus once had broken loaves and fed them to more than 5,000 people? After which he had said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give from the life of the world is my flesh. Perhaps the disciples had told them how at the Last Supper he had once again broken bread and he said to them, This is my body which is given for you. I'm inclined personally 
to think that this is at least a possibility. Because later, they would report back to the other disciples that Christ was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. It's what God used that moment to open their eyes. But, the story is filled with twists and turns, isn't it? As soon as they recognized this man of wisdom who had opened their eyes to see the truth about himself in Scripture, Jesus vanished. And they looked at each other. And they testified in awe. Shock and awe. They looked at each other. And they testified. They said, didn't our hearts burn within us while he spoke to us on the road? As Jesus opened the scriptures and pointed out, that's me it's talking about, all through the scriptures, their hearts burned. See, some people, Pastor David made a joke about me telling you who the Antichrist is. I I leaned back and told Juan, you don't want to know. So... Some people get excited when they think they've discovered something in Scripture about their version of end-time events. Or they discover some ancient religious mystery from the Iron Age. Or they, 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 they think that they found some, some angle on a fringe doctrine that they can use to bully or control other believers by insisting upon. Or maybe they, they think they found some loophole for their own sin. But see, it's only by discovering Jesus in the pages of Scripture. And even then, only when He is revealed by the prompting of the Holy Spirit in an open Bible, that will make your heart burn within you. It will make your heart burn with love and devotion and endurance until the very end. It will not be a passing religious enthusiasm. It will give you staying power when you see Christ by the power of the Word and the Spirit together. When you see Him in the Bible, you will make it. You will press through. You will endure till the very end. And just after completing a seven-mile journey on foot, and after just sitting down for supper, I'm sure they were exhausted after that walk, these disciples jump straight up, and they head straight back to Jerusalem, another seven miles, where they find uh, that the other disciples have gathered, and they too have an amazing story. When they arrived, they discovered that there have been other encounters with the resurrected Jesus. Peter and Mary Magdalene have seen him as well. And as they're speaking, it gets even better because as they're talking about all this stuff, Jesus shows up in a locked room where they're talking. And his his first thing out of his mouth, Jesus senses their doubts. And he proves his identity by showing them the wounds in his hands and his feet. He says, look, look at this. I have flesh. I have bones. He's proving that he's not just some ghost or apparition. And even, to further make this point, he even shares a fish dinner with him. In Luke, Jesus, after this account, Jesus 
does something with his disciples that is absolutely significant, especially after what we just read about what happened on the road to Emmaus. Look at this. Luke twenty four forty four. it says, He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, here we go again, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now watch. This is where we get our prayer from. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. If the Holy Spirit does not open your mind to understand the scriptures, seminary ain't going to do it. If the Holy Spirit doesn't open your mind to understand the scripture, your favorite podcast preacher, your favorite YouTube preacher ain't going to do it. You need the, 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 the decree of Jesus to open your mind to understand the scriptures. In past Easter services, I've shared the stories of well-educated, renowned atheists who in their who in diligently applying history and science and logic in order to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ have instead been convinced of the reality of it and became disciples of the one that they despised and they once tried to defame. Now, these are powerful stories, and there's not any lack of them. There are many, many stories like that. If you want to look them up, Google Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, Simon Greenleaf is probably my, my favorite story of someone who investigated the, the resurrection and became a believer. But the point I'm trying to make today is that without the assistance of Jesus to believe, the resurrection will be nothing more to you than a historical fact at best or a fairy tale or myth at the very worst. It'll be deluded and robbed of its power. But when you're wise and humble enough to let Jesus convince you of his resurrection, your heart will burn within you for all eternity. Jeremiah knew what this meant. He said one time when the, the, the word of God came to him, he said, if I say I will not mention him, meaning God, or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as, as it were, a fire a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in and I cannot. You know what our church needs? A good case of heartburn. That's about as much of a joke as I'm going to make today. But but because none of us will ever see with the resurrected Christ with our physical eyes in this life, the way he proves his resurrection to us is through his word. Is there historical, scientific, and logical reason to believe? Absolutely there is. Sure there is. It's what the whole uh, uh, idea of apologetics is. But God's word is living and active. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. It's infallible. It's inerrant. You can trust God's word. Jesus said to Pilate, we talked about this last week, all who are of the truth, listen to my voice. So here's the question. Here's the application. Will you hear his voice in the Bible and believe? And will you conform your life to his truth? Because the declaration of this church, the declaration of the Holy Spirit, and the declaration of God's infallible word this morning is this. Jesus is alive. And may that reality shape how we 
approach His promises and commands, the way we hold loosely to this life and this world, may that reality shape our dreams and desires and cause us to look with great anticipation to the next life in which, if we are believers, we will share in His resurrection. Will you stand with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, just move on hearts this morning who may have never believed or may have never believed rightly and that you would convince them of the truth of your word, that you would meet them on their own road to Emmaus, God, and that you would show them the truth in the scriptures, that you are alive. And that that's not just a historical fact. Oh, it's historical and it's a fact, but it's not just a fact. It has great implications for all the rest of our life if it's true. And it is true. And would you convince them of this? Lord, will you call people to believe, to forsake all of their old best thinking, all of their old best intentions, all their dreams. And God, come to you so that you can give them something worth dreaming about. Something worth hoping in. Something filled with joy and peace. So Lord, I just ask right now that you would do your work. Lord, I pray that you would become again the host. Insert yourself in our lives. Don't let us shake the reality of your resurrection easily, the reality of your lordship, the reality of your reign and your sovereignty. I just want to ask you, If you have peace with God this morning, and I don't mean by because of some religious action that you've done. I just mean, have you really embraced this one that died in your place and rose again so that you may never again fear either sin or death? Never fear the devil or the chambers of hell again. says today is the day of salvation. So I just want to invite you if that speaks to you on any level will you just right where you are just say a simple prayer and just say hey Lord I don't understand all this I don't know about it all but will you like you did on the road to Emmaus will you just open my eyes to see the truth of who you are and to know the implication of it. Lord I've been religiously cold. Will you just let my heart burn within me as I see the truth? And and may seeing the truth give me endurance to make it to the very end and receive the promise that you've granted to overcomers. If you need to do that this morning, we are not a church that asks you to raise your hand, walk an aisle, sign a card, say a prayer, anything like that. Just do it right where you're at. In your own words to you and God. 
the only thing that we'll ask you is let us know. Let us know if you've done that so that we can rejoice with you and we can kind of help you get off on the right foot. That's what we're here for. For the rest of us, Lord, help us to never, ever again be apathetic about your risen life. Help us to proclaim it. Help us to hope in it for our own sanctification. Help us to realize the resurrection that it has purchased for us on that great and glorious day when you call us out of our graves. Help us to hunger and thirst for more fellowship in your sufferings that we may know the power of your resurrection. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we thank you. God, what an awesome God you are to to raise Jesus from the dead, to destroy death on our behalf in the resurrection of your Son. We thank you for this. Lord, we thank you for the promise as we proclaim the Lord's death until you come through through this sacrament, through this ordinance. Lord, we look forward to the day when your voice will rock the heavens and we will all rise from our graves to be with you in glorified bodies like your own until the end. Uh, God, for, throughout all the eternity, rather, to, to, to live with you, to, to enjoy your presence and your power. And we thank you for this, for what you have accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position as I speak this simple benediction over you. The Apostle John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.